Welcome to the Three Strands Church Sermon Podcast. You're about to hear a message from our series, Wild Love. It's all about how your life transforms when you experience the unleashed power of God's feelings for you. He wants to overwhelm you with an unmatched, unending, and untamed love. A wild love. It's going to be a great encouragement for your heart. Hope you enjoy it. I want to talk to you today about something that all of you know already. You know it because it's something that you teach to your kids. It's something that when you're around little little kids, you're careful to communicate this to them. But sometimes we forget it when it comes from God to us. And it's this. I, I have a daughter who's sitting over here with headphones on right now. And I often will say to her, Sid, you, you think I love you like this. And I just hold up a little tiny bit. And I'll say, but you're wrong. I don't. I love you like this. And I stretch my arms. And sometimes I'll grab her arms and stretch them out real long. It's like a torture device, you know. And she just thinks that's the best. And she just laughs and giggles. And why do I do that? Because I want, to, I want her to know exactly how I feel about her. Because if she doesn't, she's going to grow up to believe a lie. She's going to grow up to think, that I'm kind of too busy for her, or maybe I'm not very interested in her, or maybe I'm disappointed in her, or maybe she could get to a place where I would no longer love her if I just love her a little bit. And so I'm careful to like always remind her that I don't love her just a little bit. I love her a lot bit. And I let her know that all the time. And so God has this message for us. It's a message that's woven all throughout the Bible. And the message is, I don't just love you a little bit. I love you a lot bit. I love you more than you can understand. I love you with a ridiculous, over-the-top, hard-to-even-understand love. And i got to keep reminding you. Because if I don't, you'll grow up to believe the lie that maybe you could do something that would get God to stop loving you. Or maybe you could be so far away that He wouldn't love you anymore. Or maybe... He just gets tired of you or he's too busy for you. And God doesn't want you to think that. And so he's seeking ways to remind you. Today is one of those ways to remind you how much he loves you. And so we're looking at this passage in Romans chapter 8 as we start this new series called Wild Love. And Romans is probably the best book in the whole Bible if you want to explain to somebody what the real gospel is or what God's real plan for humanity is or what God's love really looks like when it's poured out on us. And, and maybe the pinnacle chapter of that is the one we're going to look at today. We don't have time to look at this whole chapter, but we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. If, if you have a Bible or a Bible app and you want to follow along, you can. The, the words will be on the screen too for you. But we're going to look at Romans chapter 8 today. Let me read you the one verse that we're going to kind of key in on the most, I think, today. But it's Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And, uh, and it says this, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Some translations say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And we're going to look at this idea today. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus or to belong to Christ Jesus? Okay, so we're going to come back to that. But before we do... I want you to just catch this first phrase because it's the phrase God would want you to hear today. There is no condemnation. Let's give some synonyms for that, right? There is no judgment. 
There is no consequence. There is no punishment. There is no damnation. All these words you might hear in church, right? There is no condemnation. There is no one or nothing that will point the finger at you and judge you, condemn you, damn you, punish you if you belong to Christ Jesus or if you are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can condemn you. No one that can condemn you. That's kind of the main idea of the day. The, day, the, the idea that, that God would most want you to know. How amazing is that? But, but Paul doesn't stop there. And we're not going to look at all these verses. I would challenge you to go back and, and read through the whole Romans chapter 8 after church today sometime. A great, a great exercise to just let God's love kind of wash over your heart. But he spends the next about 25 verses explaining what this life looks like. A life that has no condemnation. A life that is completely unbound and unconcerned about judgment or punishment. And this is what we would call in church salvation. Or uh, born again. Or we got all these different words for it, right? But what he's saying is, if you're born again, if you're saved, if you're a Christian, if you belong to Christ... There is no judgment or punishment. There is no condemnation. And let me tell you what that looks like in the real world. And he spends 25 verses explaining what that looks like. I'm not going to list all of the things, but there's about 20 things that he says that life looks like. Here's some of them. He says things like, if that's you, you're completely free. Not only that, but you have a future hope. You can expect that in the future you'll be given a new physical body that doesn't break down. You'll be given a hope even when you feel despair. You're completely free from the power of sin. Not only that, if this is you, you need to know that I knew you before you were even born. I thought about you before you were even a thought. I mean, he lists thing after thing, freedom, healing, Provision, future hope, future body that doesn't break down. No more disease someday. No more sickness someday. Freedom from death. Freedom from sin. Freedom from sin's control over your life. He lists all these things. If this verse is true of you, then all these other rewards come with it. And what he's trying to say is that we only have one word for love. We call everything love in English, right? Sometimes in English, love is a feeling. And sometimes love is an action. Sometimes it's a thought. Sometimes it's something you write. But in the Greek, they had different words for love. And so sometimes in the translation, we lose that. But what he's really saying in this passage is if you belong to Christ, not only is there just no judgment or condemnation, but you also reap all these benefits, and all of these benefits are the outpouring of what God feels for you, which is love. That God loves you, but he doesn't just say it, he doesn't just write it, he doesn't just think it, he pours it out in action. And the actions are these. Freedom. Hope. I give you my spirit to live inside of you and empower you to do what's right to help you when you face difficulty. I do things because my love 
pours out over into you. And that's really what he's saying in this passage. And so it's, it's almost like you can't even understand, you, you can't even understand how big that love is. You have a tendency to think he just loves you a little bit, but it's really so huge, so overwhelming, so wild, so ridiculous that it's hard to grasp it all. And then Paul asks this question. He says, what are we to make of things that are this wonderful? What, what am I to think about things as wonderful as this? What, what things? The amazing outpouring of God's love on your life if you belong to Christ. What, what are we to make of that? What am I to make of all this? And instead of just answering it, he asks a series of rhetorical questions that he thinks should be so obvious that you should understand the answer without him having to tell you. Now, he tells us the answer, because he must know I was going to read it and knew I was kind of too blockheaded to get the obvious. And so I better tell him anyhow. But they're like rhetorical questions that he asks in order to get us to understand this one truth. Now, he words them all different ways. They're questions like, can anything separate you from Christ's love? Or who can even bring a charge against you? Who is it in this world that will condemn you? If all these things are true, what are we supposed to make of this? Who could even condemn you? Who could even bring a charge against you? Who could separate you from God's love? He asks all these, about six or seven different questions that are all really asking the same question. And here's the question. It's the question we're going to answer today. This is the same question he's asking in all these. Can anything separate you from God's love? And he thinks the answer should be obvious based on everything he just shared. That if you're belonging to Christ, not only are you condemnation free, but you get all these rewards of the outpouring of God's love. And if all of that is true, can anything ever separate you from God's love? And he expects us to look at that and know, no. But something happens inside of us that convinces us he doesn't love us quite enough to keep other things from separating us from that love. Something happens in us. What is it? He's going to tell us. But before he does, let me just back up and see if I can give you some practical answer, answers that I think I struggle with that maybe you struggle with too, that you never even thought of. Things that come into your life or things about your life that convince you that something can separate you from God's love if you're in Christ Jesus. There are some things. There may be hundreds. I only came up with three, but I didn't think very long. And there could be hundreds. And we don't even think about these very much. But let me just give them to you real quick, okay? Here's the first one. Maybe you never thought about this. But your perspective your perspective can sneak in and trick you into thinking something could separate you from God's love. Here's, here's what I mean by that. Maybe the best way to explain this would be to consider what kind of movies you like, okay? So maybe you're like a, an action movie kind of person, right? You love action movies. Those are your favorite. You won't even entertain, you won't even entertain other movies, right? You just only watch action movies. And so maybe for you, your perspective is such you have an easy time thinking of God like an action hero. You always think of him as the warrior, out fighting battles, conquering, defending your honor, right? And it's easy for you to think of God that way. Or maybe 
you're really into documentaries. And you most easily picture God as a teacher, always kind of explaining truth to you. Or maybe you're into romantic comedies. I hope not. Those are awful. But maybe you're really into like romantic comedies, right? And you best picture God as this guy running down the beach as you sit there and your whole world's come crashing in. And he comes down the beach to reassure you it'll be all right because I'll hug you or something, right? That's what all those movies are like. Or maybe you're like me and you really like sci-fi movies. That's like your favorite thing, sci-fi movies, right? And so you most easily picture God as kind of like this uh, extraordinary superhero with all these powers. And you latch onto that, and you love to think about God as this guy who can be everywhere at the same time or has unlimited power as if he's a superhero. Which of those things is true about God? All of those things are true. And yet something about our individual perspective, the way we're wired, causes us to most of the time think about God in one way, even though they're all true about him. Another good way to look at that would be like, ask yourself how you pray. Most people default back to their normal perspective when they start praying. So you start praying. How does your prayer start? Well, some people start their prayer off by saying, dear God, dear God, as if they're writing a letter to a friend, right? Or some people start their, letter, or their prayer off by saying, oh, Father, or dear Father, as if God's their dad. And some people tend to start their prayers off by saying, oh, great and mighty king. Because they tend to view God as this conquering king. Who's right and who's wrong? No, we're all right. God is all of those things. But our perspective tends to convince us that God is mostly one thing to us. And when something comes up in our life that falls outside of that perspective, we can have trouble remembering that God loves us in that moment. Because it's different than how we view him. I, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but here's kind of how I wrote it down in my notes. All of us have a unique perspective on life, and it colors the way we see God. Is he your father? Is he your master? Is he your friend or your teacher or your helper? Is he all of those things? Or have you limited him down to one thing? See, God claims to be all these different things in his word at the same time. But how can that be true? How can he be all of these things for me equally at one time? And the devil whispers that into your ear. He can't love you. He's busy out there fighting people's battles. He's not proud of you. You're a coward. And he convinces you that because of your main view of God, he must, all the other things must not be true. It's a difficult thing to believe because your perspective bends you to view God a certain way. But when you place limits on God's greatness, you set yourself up to believe that there are limits on God's goodness. And we do that all the time. And so your perspective can affect the way you view God's love for you. Here's another one maybe you never thought of. The way you view time. The way you view time can affect the way you think God loves you. Let, let me give you an example. I got an example right here, okay? I need somebody to help. Can, can I get you to help me? Just sit right there. Just stay right there. Uh, I'm going to really need your help because I tangled this now. Can somebody, Jeremy's shaking his head at me. Let's see if we can untangle. I got a string here, okay? Oh, I found the ends. That's a good start. That's a good start. Okay, just hold on to that end, okay? I'm going to string this the whole way over here to, to Tara. 
Okay, you can hold that in. Good job, good job. Somebody's going to run through the middle. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so imagine this line strung up across the front represents time. This is how all of us view time. It's how all of us view our existence. Let's see if I can get this the right way. I better turn around to make sure I... So we, we read this way to this way, right? So you guys the think down here is like your past, right? And then right here is like what's going on right now. And way down there is the future. That is how everybody in the world views time. And it affects the way you view how God loves you. Because God doesn't view time like that. In other words, what I'm saying is, we think about the past much differently than God thinks about the past. He doesn't see things linear like we do. He doesn't see things on a timeline. And so you think about your past, and the devil whispers in your ear, ah, you were so bad back then. You messed up so bad. There is no way God loves you now. Right? Or he says to you, you can't be as good as those church people. You'll never be able to be as good as them in the future. So you might as well just not even think God loves you now. See how we think about time? But here's how God thinks about time. You guys can let go of that. Right? This is how God thinks about time. He takes that timeline and he bunches it all up. And it all just connects. That's God's time. There's no difference between past and present and future to him. It's all the same. He's outside of time. He has always known everything. He's always known exactly what's going to happen. That's even the wrong way to say it. It's always, always been for him. There is no past. There's no future. It's all, in, it's all happening connected at the same time in God's mind. And yet Satan whispers in our ear, because of your past, because of the difficulties of the future, because of the worries you have about tomorrow, because of the fears you have in the moment, because of the regrets you have in the past. God can't love you. That can separate you from his love. But God says, no way. That's all interconnected. I don't even see a difference. I know all of that stuff. But I love you. I love you. It doesn't affect me like it affects you. And so the way we view time can have an impact on how we think God loves us. But God doesn't see that way. When you're outside of time, you look at events, you look through the event just to see the truth of how everything already came out. God already knows. The struggle that you're worried about in the present, God already knows how it's going to turn out. The future that you're worried about, God's already got it planned and done. The past that you regret, he died for that before you even did it. It's not past, present, and future to God. And I wrote down just this line to kind of help me remember it, but how you view time affects your understanding of how God views you. How you view time affects your understanding of how God views you. But he doesn't view his love like we view his love. He doesn't view time like we do. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Not a temporary love. Not a moment in time love. A love that stretches back everlasting and forward everlasting. It's everywhere. Where could I go to escape from your love? Could I go into the past? God would still be there. Could I go into the future? His love would still be waiting. There's no place on that timeline that you can go to get away from God's love. It's everlasting. It's outside of time. 
And here's the last one I wrote down. Your feelings. Your feelings can affect the way you think God views you or the way you think God loves you. Your feelings. You can't trust your feelings because your heart's a liar. I mean, my heart lies to me all the time. My heart tells me that if I go over to that cabinet and eat a piece of cake, I'm still going to look like Zeus. Right? And that's what it tells me. I'm still going to look like a Greek god. But that's just a lie. It's just my heart tricking me into what I want. Your heart will tell you all kinds of stuff. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. You can't even know how bad it really is. You can't trust your heart. Your heart's a liar. Your heart will convince you that some situations are hopeless, that there's no answer. But God's truth says there is no hopeless cause. Your heart will convince you that your ways are more logical than God's ways. But God's truth says to trust what God says, even if it doesn't make sense to you. Your heart will convince you that you're too dirty to be loved by God. You've crossed a line that God can't forgive or that God could never love someone like you. Even your circumstances can influence your feelings. I read a story this week about the W Hotel in Washington, D.C. On June 30th, 2011, it's kind of a a swanky hotel. It's like the kind of hotel we probably wouldn't go to, right? Well, like Opie and Tuesday would go to on vacation. You know what I mean? Like we probably wouldn't go there, but it's kind of swanky. And so they they can do like parties and stuff all the time. So June 30th, 2011, they were having a party on the rooftop of the W Hotel in Washington, D.C. Everything was great. It was a beautiful day, summer day, weather was warm. Everybody was having a good time. Late into the evening, the party changed. As everybody gathered around a woman's body, laying on the ground, just outside the rooftop of the W Hotel, she had jumped. It was covered with a white sheet, and the police were there. And her friend said, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. She just walked over to the edge, climbed over the railing. She turned around, looked at me, and said, nobody loves me not even God, and jumped. Her feelings convinced her that God didn't love her, that she had been separated from God's love. Or a story I just followed on Twitter two days ago. I don't know if anybody saw this story on Twitter a couple days ago. A nine-year-old third grader in West Virginia, his older sister, found him, hanged himself in his bedroom. Anybody see that story? And I was watching the news uh, reporters talk about it. And they were interviewing some of his aunts and uncles. And the the one uncle said, I knew something was wrong. He hadn't acted the same for the last couple days. They all said he had been bullied over and over again at school. He had no friends. And he said, I knew something was wrong. I could get the feeling that he just didn't feel loved. And you think Satan doesn't whisper that in your ear? Even when you're nine? God doesn't love you. You're too dirty. You're too messed up. You're too broken. Said the one aunt said the last thing this kid did was the week he killed himself. 
They lived in a trailer park, and he went outside the trailer, and he gathered up some scrap wood, and he put together, and they showed a picture of it. He put together a little makeshift clubhouse, and he went around to all the kids in the park and asked them if they'd come play, and none of them would come. And then the next day, he hanged himself at nine. And the enemy's vicious, vicious in our ear. He's going to use whatever it takes, stuff we don't even think about, our perspective on the world. He's going to use our feelings. He's going to use time, whatever he can think of to convince you of this, that God will give up on you, that God will stop loving you. But don't trust your heart. Your feelings don't determine God's facts. Your feelings might distort God's facts, but they don't ever determine God's facts. God's facts are the truth, no matter what your heart says. Proverbs 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't depend on your own understanding. In other words, don't trust yourself. Trust what God says. Don't trust your feelings. Trust what God says. Remember I said that Paul asks all these questions as if they're like rhetorical questions, like the answer should be obvious. We should have heard everything God is going to pour out on those who belong to him. And we should hear that. And what should we think about those things? We should think, no, there's no way anything could ever separate us from God's love. But Paul knew. He knew that your perspective and your view of time and your feelings and probably a hundred other things would be used by the enemy to speak whispers into your ear and convince you that God is displeased with you, that God doesn't love you anymore, that you've gone too far. He knew that, and so he answered it. I'd like to read you his answer. Go through all these questions. I'm just going to read through them. You don't even need to preach this. This is written so well. You can just read through it. It doesn't even require preaching. Let me just read through it with you, right? In, in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31, here's where he starts asking these questions, right? And he says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? Now, remember what those things are, right? The outpouring of God's love on those who belong to Christ. Not just the words, the outpouring of it. What are we supposed to say about things that wonderful? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since he didn't spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Here's his first answer. No one. Drop the mic. No one. Who can accuse you? No one. Because God himself is the one who gave you right standing. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Here's the next question. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? He thinks it should be obvious. Here's the next question. Does it mean he no longer loves us? If we have trouble or calamity, difficulty, if we're persecuted, if we're hungry, we don't even know what hunger feels like in this country, but even if we were starving, does that mean God no longer loves you? Even if we were poor or destitute, even if we're in danger, even if we're threatened with death, 
Do any of those things mean that you can be separated from Christ's love? No way. No way. No circumstance. No other person. No event. No situation. None of it. And then he says in verse 37, no, despite all of these things, in other words, even if all of these things were true, even if I was broke and starving and being beaten up by people and being abused, threatened with death, even if all those things were true at the same time, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus who loved us, past tense, Overwhelming victory is ours through Jesus who loved us and gives us hope. But that isn't enough. But it's like an infomercial. He's like, but wait, there's more. But wait, there's still more. He says, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Not death, not life. That pretty much rules out everything, right? He doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Not angels, not demons. You see what he's saying? If everybody dies, if your life is taken from you, and every angel in heaven turned on God, and every demon in hell joined them, and they all came against you at the same time, not even then could they rip you away from God's love. Not our fears in the present, not our worries in the future, not even the powers of hell, what are the powers of hell? Now you read through that, you don't think about it. You think, well, the powers of hell must be demons, right? But he already said demons. What's, the, what's left in hell? What's left that's powerful in hell besides demons? There's only one more thing. You know what it is? Sin. Right? What, what power does hell have? All they got is a bunch of demons that can abuse you and a bunch of sin that can try to tempt you into doing. Not even every sin in hell not even every demon put together against you. Not even every horrible thing you can imagine doing all at once could tear you away from the love of God if you belong to Christ. That's how secure you are. That's how loved you are. Not your words, God. Your actions, God. You hold me. You secure me. You give me a future. You take care of the past. You help me in the present. It keeps going. That's not enough, right? What else could there be? Verse 39. No power in the sky above or no power in the earth below. Indeed, nothing. How can I be more clear? Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And so there's only one thing left to answer. What does it mean to belong to Christ? See, we ask the question, does God still love me? But that isn't the right question. Of course he still loves you. I shouldn't even have to tell you. What I just described should make it obvious. The question to ask is, do I belong to Jesus Christ? So how do you know? You've got to go back to verse 1. So back in verse 1, you read, he says this, There is therefore no condemnation 
to those who belong to, to Christ Jesus. And so you ask this question, what does it mean to belong to Christ Jesus? Because that's the, the premise statement. Everything else in the chapter is conditional upon this sentence. If I belong to Christ Jesus, none of the condemnation applies. So how do I know? So I found it in one of Paul's other letters. He wrote a letter to the church at Galatia. We call it Galatians. And in Galatians 2.20, he writes this. So my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. You see what he's saying there? See what he's saying there? What I used to be is dead. All that's left now is this shell that Christ lives inside of. All that's left now is an image of Jesus. All that's left now is that Christ takes me and owns me. He takes over. You can call it whatever you want. He possesses me. He invades me. He indwells me. He takes over. He invades my heart, and I now am owned by Him. I belong to Him. He is in me, and I am in Him. Right? So what does that life look like? How, does that, how do you know if that's your life? Here it is. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who what? Poured out His love on me. Who loved me. That's this week. And gave Himself for me. That's next week. Stay tuned, right? Who loved me. How do I know if I belong to Christ? How do I know if He's invaded my body? How do I know if I get all of the blessings of His love being poured out on me? How do I know that? I answer this question. Do I trust in the Son of God? Or do I trust my perspective? When my perspective says, God's really a king, He's probably not interested in your little petty beliefs or problems. Do I trust what He says? Or do I trust my perspective? When my feelings say, I'm too dirty, God couldn't love me, do I trust my feelings? Or do I trust what God says? When I think about time and I think I've messed up too bad in the past, my life's a train wreck right now, I'll never be able to be good enough, do I say, yeah, that's how I think about time, but I'm not going to let that be what I trust. I'm going to trust what God says instead. Do I trust what God says above all the voices whispering in my head? That's a good indicator that you belong to Christ. Here's another way to say it. If you've gone to this church for a while, you've probably heard me say this before. But forget about telling people to pray some prayer that's not in the Bible. Okay? Forget about telling people to say some magic words and then they'll go to heaven. Stop telling people that. It's not in the Bible, right? Stop telling people that the way to get to heaven is to sign a card at our church. You can fill out our Connect card if you're visiting our church, but that ain't going to get you into heaven. Stop telling people that that makes you belong to Christ. Answer this question instead. What is my stance towards God? You see, there's all different words used in the Bible for what it means to belong to Christ. Some people say you got to believe, and some people say you got to receive. Other people say you got to accept. Still, other people in the Bible said you need to repent. Jesus himself would walk up to people and say, Drop everything and follow me. The thief on the cross that everybody agrees on became a Christian and went to heaven. 
He didn't say, I believe, I receive, I repent, I accept anything. All he said was, remember me. Two words. It's not in magic words. Being in Christ or belonging to Christ is all about your stance towards God. Is your stance one that trusts him or is it one that trusts you? Let me give you an example. Some of you, your whole lives, have taken a stance in your heart against God that looks like this. Shut up, God. Who are you to tell me what to do? That person doesn't trust God. Their stance proves they trust them. I know what's best for me. You don't trust God. You trust you. And if you're not trusting in the Son of God, then Jesus isn't living inside of you. You don't belong to Christ. Some of you your whole lives have had a position towards God that looks like this in your heart. And your attitude's always been, prove it. You say you love me, prove it. You say you're the Messiah, get yourself off that cross. A stance of skepticism and doubt, disbelief. You don't trust what God says. You don't trust in the Son of God. You trust your own logic. Some of you your whole lives have had a stance in your heart like this ashamed man that was that was me for years you know ashamed you wouldn't tell another soul what you're really like you're ashamed of it jesus says you're a conqueror and you're a victor a victor and he provides you with freedom and healing but you don't trust that you trust what your heart tells you that you're a loser you should be ashamed of how you live you don't trust in the Son of God. Your stance proves you trust what you think. What's your stance towards God? You can change that today without a magic prayer. You can change that today without signing any card. You can change that today without me putting my hand on your head and, and casting a spell on you or all the other stupid stuff we tell people to do to get to heaven when God is just saying, drop everything and follow me. Believe, receive, accept. He's saying, change the way you look at me. Stop believing what you think. Stop believing what people tell you. Stop believing what your circumstance convince you of. And instead, trust what I say above every other voice. And in that moment, condemnation goes away. And in that moment, I will pour out my love on you. I won't just say I love you. I will pour out future healing, a new body, peace, my comfort, my security, my presence. I will give you all that stuff. The power to overcome struggle. The power to let go of the past. The power to have hope in the future. I'll give you all of that. The outpouring of my love. If you'll just belong to me. If you'll just be in me. That's salvation. That's the gospel. I just want to read you what I wrote at the end of my notes here. When you belong to Christ, God pours out all the benefits of his love on you. You see, God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it because you didn't have anything to do with starting it. He made a decision to love you long before you were even thought of. And his mind's already made up and he's calling out to you saying, I've done all the work. 
and I'm going to give all the blessing. Just stop trusting you and trust me instead. Nothing in all creation can turn his love off. Nothing can make his love cease. Nothing will ever cause him to not love you deeply and personally. You may give up on God. You may have given up on God a long time ago, but he will never give up on you. What if there are hundreds of different things that the enemy is using to trick you in your mind that God's love could be taken from you? I just named three of them. He's tricking you into underestimating God's love for you. What if the only thing keeping you from experiencing the greatness of God isn't his feelings for you, but your trust for him? What if that were true today and you didn't even know it? Because you never even thought about, maybe my perspective tricks me. Maybe my feelings play games with me. Maybe the way I view time has an impact on how I view God. Maybe there's a hundred things we didn't even mention. Today, can I challenge you with this? Just change your stance towards God to one of trust, to one of surrender. I told people in our church several times now, this sign right here, you know what this is? You see this in church a lot, right? People raise their hands up. And, and when I was a kid, I was like, what are those people doing? I thought they were playing football. I didn't know what they were doing. It's like, what are those people doing? Nobody ever told me, you know. What are they doing? You know what that is? In our world, that's the universal sign for surrender. You go to the middle of a jungle in Africa and you hold a gun up to somebody's face, they're going to go like that. Because the world around knows that this means I give up. I surrender. You know what God needs from you today in your heart? He just needs you to give up. Just surrender. Just trust what he says above all the other voices. And when you do that, his love is unleashed on you. It's wild. Like you can't even tell people what it's like. I should be able to just tell you, and it should be obvious, Paul says. But I couldn't because I knew I'd have to answer the questions. You still wouldn't get it because you can't understand how amazing it is when God pours out an untamed, wild, unleashed love on you. He wants you to feel that today. No condemnation. He wants to rush in like a hurricane and bombard your heart. Not with just saying he loves you, but with the outpouring of that love. No condemnation. No condemnation. No judgment. No punishment. Would you guys all stand and let's sing that out to God to end our service today.